Hey folks, hope your Q3 and Q4 is off to a good start. We just wrapped up Founder 500 in Austin, Texas. Hundreds of bootstrap founders showed up. It was an amazing time. I loved meeting so many of you. This interview today is a recording from that session, which you're going to love because now we have visuals, we have the founder teaching, and I made every single speaker include their revenue graphs and real artifacts in their presentations. Without further ado, let's jump in. You are listening to Conversations with Nathan Latka, where I sit down and interview the top SaaS founders, like Eric Wan from Zoom. If you'd like to subscribe, go to gitlatka.com. We've published thousands of these interviews, and if you want to sort through them quickly by revenue or churn, CAC, valuation, or other metrics, the easiest way to do that is to go to gitlatka.com and use our filtering tool. It's like a big Excel sheet for all of these podcast interviews. Check it out right now at gitlatka.com. Please help me in welcoming David Hauser from Grasshopper to the stage. David, welcome. All right, guys. So it's the end of the day. So if you could just help me do something real quick. Everyone stand up. Yeah, get, get a little bit of movement real quick. Um, but we're going to do something to make everyone outside really jealous because there's a few people outside that aren't in here. Um, so uh, we're just going to play a real quick game. Um, we're all going to sit down. I'm going to come back up on stage and we're going to give a standing ovation. We're going to make as much noise as we possibly can so everyone outside is super jealous that they're not in here. Okay? So we're going to try this. Ready? And here we go. All right. Perfect, perfect. Thanks, guys. I just had a bet with someone that I couldn't get a standing ovation, so I appreciate it. Um, no, but in, in all seriousness, it's, it's nice to move around a little bit. Um, so I, I have about 18 minutes here. Um, I'm going to keep this as casual as possible, but walk through a little bit about um, how we think about M&A. Um, obviously, we've gone through a few transactions. Um, for those that don't know Grasshopper, press the button. Um, yeah, we, we did build Grasshopper, bootstrapped it 100%. Um, built it from zero to $30 million a year in revenue before we sold it, and ultimately sold it to Citrix for $175 million in total. Um, I, I'll talk a little bit about how we use debt as well. Um, also built Chargeify, um, sold that company twice, uh, most recently to Battery Ventures. Um, and I've also raised capital as well, so happy to talk about that. Um, most recently raising uh, $42 million for uh, Vanilla from Insight Partners and um, Venrock. I also make a lot of investments, not just buy companies. Um, so talk a little bit about re our revenue growth here. Um, we were very lucky in our first year. We broke a million and a half dollars right away. Um, and, and then you can kind of see that revenue trajectory um, and how it changed in those later years. Um, we sold it over here in the 14-15 period. Um, and uh, we got really lucky. Um, ha happy to talk about uh, kind of some of the team changes that happened here. Uh, I was talking to some people a few minutes ago about how at kind of about $10 million, we went from uh, a lot of doers on the team to a lot of thinkers, right? So from one to $10 million in revenue, you can have a lot of doers on the team, which means, hey, do this, come back, do this, come back. To get from 10 to 20, you need a lot of thinkers, which is people that come to you and say, David, here's what I'm going to do and here's why I'm going to do it. And I'll come back to you when it's done. 
right? So those were those changes that happened there. Um, also, the biggest changes that, that really happened through these periods, paid advertising. Each of these periods, we found a new marketing channel and put more and more money into it. Plain and simple, right? Like people want to stand up here and give you complex things. We paid more marketing dollars. We grew more profitably continuously, right? Um, and the later years, we spent $12.5 million on radio, right? So um, th those take a lot of tests to get there. So how did we do that and spend $12 million on radio? Um, in the later years, we, we took on some debt, right? And, and this is one of the reasons that I really love what Nathan's doing here um, with uh, FounderPath and being able to get people access to this. Um, we used SVB because there were very few options at the time for us. Um, we were also at a revenue kind of point that they allowed for that. Um, these were roughly the terms. I think it was actually 12 and a half percent interest, so it wasn't cheap, but there was no warrants, no equity, so we retained 100%, and they allowed us to spend without covenants, um, assuming that our underlying metrics stay the same. So there was no drawdown covenants or anything like that. We could spend the full amount that we had from them, which was about $15 million. Um, we spent 12 of it uh, in those first periods uh, when we got there. Um, so obviously, I just said that this is why I, I really appreciate what Nathan's doing. I think there's a big gap in the market uh, for that one to $10 million company to be able to access debt, right? And I, I would encourage everyone to think very deeply about, you know, how can you utilize debt properly? And my number one takeaway on that is only use it for things you know are working, marketing channels you know are working. It's not for testing. It's not for hiring. It's not for growing product. It's none of those things. It is, I know that if I spend a dollar here, I get $2 back and I need to spend more of those dollars, right? That's how you accelerate growth with debt. So yes, we sold the company for a lot of money. I don't know what else to say there. Um, it, uh, <laughs> Um, I, 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 I have to say that I, I think there was a, definitely a timing and luck factor to that. We built a great company, but someone way overpaid for it, Citrix. Um, and uh, I, they, they've done very well now, right? So I think the company will do $85 uh, million this year and you know definitely will hit their $100 million target, which was part of the metric that they decided on before they bought things. Um, but they overpaid at the time. Um, and that, that really, I think, contributed to our management team um, and the people that we had on that core team. When we sold the company, we left the next day, me and my partner, right? So there was no earnout, there was no time we had to spend there, nothing else. And that was because of the management team that we built. They all stayed on um, and they were valued tremendously by Citrix. Um, many of them stayed for a long period of time, uh, including one of my current partners, Mike, who, who spent a lot of time there. Um, so let's jump into a little bit about um, the M&A process. I'm happy to also answer questions. So I'm going to save a few minutes at the end um, to make sure that I can get the things that you want to talk about. Um, and, and also, I promise to give you a few quick takeaways as well um, outside of this. Um, so let, let's just jump right into here. Um, 
This, quite honestly, is a, a matrix that we stole um, and adapted for our purposes for how we think about the M&A process as a whole. And I think it's useful for everyone in this room to think about how can I generate the most value from a prospect, you know, an M&A prospect over time. But more importantly, these are the things that make your business valuable to you, right? So it's not just to me, but these are the things that represent a great business. Right, so we'll walk through each of these and kind of how we do this. And it, it's a matrix, it's in, it's in the USB drive, right? Um, we also, this one is specific to direct to consumer companies. So some of these things might not make as much sense, but we have a SaaS one. I also have the original matrix. If anyone wants it, just let me know. I'm happy to talk about it. Um, but so, so here's how we think about these things. The, at, at the top is, is revenue, right? Um, each of these are rated on a one, two, one, two, three, zero to three scale. Um, and as you step down, it, it makes a lot more sense, right? So revenue, the higher the revenue, the more importantly, and it's not just because it's the number, it's because it gives us cushion, right? It means if we make mistakes after we acquire things, we have more chances to make another mistake to correct it or, tr or kind of go through that process again, right? So that's why the smaller the company, the higher the risk right? EBITDA the same, right? It kind of translates through. If, if I'm looking at a company that has a million dollars of EBITDA, that's much more risky than a company that has four, right? It's pretty easy to lose a million dollars in a mistake, <laughs> right? So again, it's about comfort and cushion, right? AOV, you know, this is for direct to consumer, like I said, but same, same concept. This just tells me how much money can I spend on marketing, right? That's the only thing that, that, that I care about here. Six month repeat rate. That's the same as as retention, right? This is kind of the, the repeat rate for consumer goods. Um, how, how much do I have to resell, right? If I have to resell my entire customer base again and again, that's much more risky, much less valuable, right? So each of these metrics are the things in your business that make it more valuable. Addressable market is really one that's interesting to me because a lot of people think about size of addressable market. And I think quite honestly, that doesn't matter for most of us in the room, right? Unless you're doing hundreds of millions of dollars, the size doesn't matter as long as it's big enough, right? And I think for the most part, we're all working on things that are big enough. What I want to know is, is it growing stable or contracting? It's really hard to operate in a market that's contracting, right? No matter the size, there's just a a, a downward pressure continuously if it's contracting. So this, this makes it less valuable and unfortunately is less controllable, right? These other things you can start to work on, addressable market, not as much, right? Existing channels, uh, we can skip over that because this is all, that's kind of really direct to consumer. Um, ROAS, this is one of our most important metrics because we are a very market-driven company uh, and, and we care about how much money can we spend to generate new customers. This matters more than anything else, right? Assuming that we have enough EBITDA and enough revenue, ROAS matters. And it's only on new customers. So s stop kidding yourself and dividing over you know other things. It's really actual new customers. Um, the last one I, I'll talk about is growth potential here, um, which is down here, as the acquirer, how can I grow the business, right? Does it fit with my expertise, right? Do I have to do more marketing? Do I have to do have 
grow a bigger sales team? Do I have to go to Amazon? Like whatever the things are, how can I grow this company, right? So Nathan asked that I actually rate a, take some companies here um, and, and, and kind of go through it. Um, but you can kind of see how this falls out at the bottom, right? And one of the key things here is we won't necessarily just buy the company that's at the 35 or the 36, right? Company one or three. Um, those are going to be our highest potential ones to look at. It's not automatic, right? So maybe I'd buy three. Uh, like I said, it, it's on the, the USB drive. Um, so that's a little bit about the template. If anyone wants that template or the SAS one or the original one that we stole from Stanford, happy to send it to you or send you the link. Um, it, it's super helpful. But I would suggest thinking about all of these categories for how you can make your business most valuable for yourself and then how we, on the other side of it, think about these things. So a few of the stuff that's not on the matrix um, necessarily, but I did want to talk about from an M&A standpoint. Um, First, like I mentioned at Grasshopper, we got out of the business. We had a management team. This was tremendously valuable to the acquirer for so many reasons. First, the transition was easy. Um, they actually paid more because they didn't have to find expensive positions for me and my co-founder to be in and stupid titles, right? So they paid more cash up front to not deal with that. Um, and I think this is true of most acquirers. Like if you're working in the business, it's a big concern. Build a, a strong and independent team. And that means people that can operate without your oversight, right? So you can provide high level strategic direction, but they can operate the business without your insight or your, your, you being there, right? Um, document all your systems and processes because it goes into the next point, which is you should be actively building what is like a data room. It doesn't have to be as structured, but all of that stuff should be there. It's good business practice to do it, one. Um, but two, it will show you the gaps and weaknesses in your business that an acquirer will look at and say, hey, I'm going to devalue this part of it right? Hey, your legal contracts are not all in the right place. You don't, you're not able to assign them on acquisition, all of those things. Might as well clean that up now, um, but document every process in the business. The next one is kind of intuitive, but it kind of goes to the last, which is timing. Leave some meat on the bone if you want to get the most value for the company. You don't want to have optimized the shit out of everything. Right, because then the acquirer is like, well, I can't really do much with it. And the only acquirers that are left then are strategic acquirers, which are relatively rare as a whole, right? Um, so leave some stuff so they have some excitement. Hey, I could double radio ads, I could make more money, right? Hey, I could cross sell and upsell to my customers. You haven't done that yet, right? So while we could have built Grasshopper up, right, to that next 50 million, 65 million, we left enough for the acquirer to be interested and excited to overpay today. So it's kind of counterintuitive. The next one is don't worry about running a process, right? Lots of people will stand up here and we all hear on the news, Cisco and Microsoft were bidding for my company. So I got a billion dollars, right? That happens almost never, right? So don't count on that and stop wasting time running on a process. Identify the right acquirer that's gonna get tremendous value from your business and go after those people, not just 
say, I'm going to get an investment bank and run a process, it rarely ever happens. So don't, don't waste the time. Um, timing matters. So I'll give you a really quick story about Grasshopper because um, it goes into the last point, which is every conversation is a no-go, go conversation. Uh, we learned this from the, the, the bankers we had involved to help us through that process. Um, so at Grasshopper, we sold the company in May. Um, we closed the deal in May. Um, six weeks later, after we closed that deal, um, an activist investor uh, told Citrix they had to sell off all of their SaaS business. So we were weeks away from the deal not going through, right? Not because of something we did, not because of something Citrix did, an external factor, right? So timing just matters. Sometimes it, people call it luck, sometimes whatever, but it's timing. And then every conversation is go, no go. Meaning when you get on the call with that acquirer, they are, they are seconds away from saying yes or no every time, right? And you just have to understand that and know no deal is complete until the paperwork is signed. Yeah. Well, that's even better. Money in the bank. Um, so that, that was a good learning. Um, so I, I have a few minutes left. Um, hopefully I've covered some of these topics. Um, I, I'll happily answer any quick questions that people have because I want to make sure that people leave with the things that they want to talk about answered. Um, and then if we have any time left, I'll leave you with a few quick takeaways. Um, if nothing else in this presentation was useful, you can at least take away that. Hi, thank you. Excellent presentation. Um, I, I was very curious about the early days of your radio spend and you know how did you get to 12 and maybe what insights you had that allowed you to get to that high a number monthly. And sure. I'm sure what worked at 12 probably didn't work at one or two a month. Yeah. Yeah. So we discovered radio advertising because we were very early um, with Sirius XM. So satellite radio as an advertiser. Um, so we kind of discovered that with a $50,000 spend and we ramped that up to call it kind of two, 200,000 a month or so um, and understood the metrics and how it worked. But what we learned very quickly is terrestrial radio, standard radio is very, very different. All the metrics are different. How you buy it's different. Um, there's a there's a path that is known. Like people who do this, they just know how this works. Um, you have to spend roughly a million dollars in a in a market before you can go to nationwide, and the minimum for nationwide is 12 million, right? And then there's a process for three weeks on, two weeks off. All of these different things that happen through the process. But the most important thing to understand is the way radio advertising works and why it's successful is because of the long tail. So when you run ads, when you stop running ads, for three to six weeks after you stop running ads, you still get orders in the DMAs that you're testing, right? That's how the CPAs work. Because if you look at it on a pure CPA basis, you're like, I'll never do this, right? That, that's how this works. And you have to do it in this process. Most people who fail at this skip the testing thing and they're like, I ran Austin and it didn't work. Well, yeah, because it's not a big enough test, the saturation wasn't right, and it's not a large enough DMA. So they give up on radio rather than actually do it the right way and figure it out. But it's a great question. Just yell it. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. Hi. Um, so in terms of valuation, so if the company is acquiring for the technology assets so that you know they can get to go to market faster, like they get 18 months, two years, versus uh, uh, the company actually increases your bottom line or you know, you know, 
top line, right? So which is more valuable? Yeah, so I, there, there's there's three parts there. So the, the, the least valuable from an acquisition standpoint is cost savings, right? I buy this company, I get cost savings, least valuable. The next kind of down that line is I buy this company to speed up my market development. And then the most valuable is I increase my bottom, my top line or my bottom line together, right? But it's about top line. You know, can I sell more of what you have to my customers or what I have to your customers? That's the most valuable. Yeah, so I think the, the, yeah, so the question was, how do you value company? Is it uh, EBITDA? Is it, you know, sales, ARR? Um, for, for, for us, we're a very specific type of buyer. We're much more value-based um, than strategic because we're putting a lot of things together. So we're looking at EBITDA multiples. So I think the more important question is, what are the categories of buyers, right? And we sit in one category. Each of them think about valuations differently. The most valuable strategic but there are other people that you know are different than us that will pay higher multiples on ARR, for example, compared to EBITDA. And uh, all right, over here, uh, great, great uh, uh, presentation. So, question is: If the company has two income sources, one is software as a SaaS, and then service side of it, does it matter for evaluation purposes? Proportion between those two? Hundred percent, it matters. I think it's less about the the percentage proportion, um, but you will definitely get nowhere close to the value on the services, right? And and we went through this at Vanilla when we were talking to VCs. They're like, listen, like forty percent of the business's services, not SaaS. We value it at zero, right? In 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 the fundraising process, right? Um, the acquisition process, it's probably not zero, but I could imagine it's pretty close to zero. Um, profit margin is very different than software. Just uh, be mindful of time. Just Nathan. Okay. Real quick, can you jump into the philosophy of the meat on the bone and how do you know when you're there? Is it new products that you talk about delivering, but you yeah. don't get into them, or what is that? Yeah, I think it's hard to. It's one of those things you kind of know and feel like. The worst deals that we walk into is when someone said, "I've optimized everything." not a place you want to be, right? If it's every marketing channel, if it's every you know vendor, if it, whatever the things are, um, it's not where you want to be. You want to feel that there's like a, enough upside. I don't know what the number is, but it's like meaningful upside. Like if you were on the other side of the table, would you be excited to be like, yeah, I could do that. Guys, on that note, give it up for David Hauser. <laughs>